When I started this podcast, I promised to introduce you to a few of the special people I have met along the way in my life and who had great influence in my life. My guest, Dan Buchanan, is one of those people. I was just 22 years of age when I first met Dan. He was one of my teachers at Gupton Jones Mortuary College, who later became the longtime president of the college and is now a practicing funeral director. He has been a mentor to many, too many to count. Some of you have probably wondered why anyone would get in the death care field. Who would even think about doing such? You will hear Dan's story. He will tell you how and why he got into this business. And maybe you will at least have an opportunity to think about our profession in a different light. You also learn about the impact of a very young Dan working in the mortuary in Saigon during the Vietnam War. You will get first-hand knowledge of all the young people who were shipped home in caskets and gave their lives for our country. All of them, every single one of them, were someone's spouse, child, sibling, or grandchild. Hopefully, after listening to this, you will have the urge to stand a little straighter and taller when our flag is raised at the next national anthem. You're about to listen in on a conversation between two old friends who have been in the funeral business a long time. We will talk about a changing business, but we will also talk about the importance of the funeral profession, of respectfully taking care of the dead and honoring a life lived, and the impact that has on families and society. Dan Buchanan, is a Vietnam veteran, teacher extraordinaire, mentor to many, college president who has plenty of stories to back it all up. He is also a man who was created to be there for hurting people on the worst day of their lives. He is simply a professional, and I am proud to call him my friend. Viewing life from a it could be worse Laugh, think, and cry With the country undertaker This is Bruce Goddard, and you're listening to the View from a Hearse podcast. This is actually episode number 40. I just looked that up. Additionally, there's some bonus episodes, but we've got a lot of episodes out there. Uh, I am honored to have... As my guest today, Dan Buchanan, I met Dan when I was 21 years old. I was almost 22. And Dan, I, I look back, you weren't much older than me. I, I was, I think you were 28, 27 or 8 when I came to Gupton Jones Mortuary College. Probably not quite that old. I had, I had been four years of college, uh, been in the Army, Vietnam and all that sort of thing. And started teaching. I was probably 25, maybe. Yeah, right. I came in August of 76, and I had just graduated from Georgia. I thought I would live in Atlanta at one time, but after spending four years of my life and about six years of my daddy's money in Athens, uh, I, I came home. And I, we had a lot going on. My brother and I were building a grocery store. We, were, we bought another funeral home all while I was in school. And I would drive two hours to Atlanta every day and two hours back. And I would work when I got back. I would be on call at night. I was an EMT running the ambulance service. Somewhere during that year, kind of towards the end of that year, I got married. But the point of this is, as we all get older, you, you look back on your life, and, and you look back at people that influenced you. You're one of those people. You were a teacher at Gupton Jones, but you also became the president of Gupton Jones. And you had a, a big influence on me. I've had a wonderful career in a wonderful profession. You know, when I, when I went there, I had one thing on my mind. What have I got to do to get licensed? You know, I just want to get licensed. But I got much more than that. And from you, probably the biggest thing I got was a man that had a passion for this business. And, and I had a passion, but at that point in my life, 
uh, my passion was getting licensed so I could make a living. But you had passion running out of your pores. You had a major influence on my life. So I'm honored to have you on here. I know you've got a heck of a story. There's other piece, piece of this is you got a ton of funeral directors out there that know and love you. I mean, think about it. I don't know how many people you taught or how many people you taught their daddies or mamas or whoever, but it just spreads out, and there's a lot of people. So I know other people will want to hear this story. Bruce, it's a very interesting story, probably a, a, a rather complex story. My daddy, I was fortunate that he was a Presbyterian minister. Uh, he was a good preacher. He knew how to preach. He knew how to provide pastoral care. And he certainly knew how to give guidance to his son, who could on occasion be a bit a bit wayward. Uh, but I grew up a child of a, of a minister. We grew up in rural North Carolina, a little town called Medden. Daddy was a pastor of Hallfields Presbyterian Church there. It was a, a very large rural church. It was the political center of the community. You, growing up in Reynolds, you, you know all about that kind of thing. Yeah. It was the, the social center. It was the religious center of the community. There were two governors of the state of North Carolina in that church. There were uh, United States, uh, United States senator in that church. There were state senators in that church. So you can imagine there was a lot of alignment in that place. Well, when I was there, growing up there, as I became old enough to be aware of what was going on, I was just a baby when when Daddy took that church. Around I guess seven or eight years old. You know, Daddy did all the funerals in that church, including the service for the governor of North Carolina who passed away. And that was a big, major event. But I used to watch those funerals, Bruce. It Probably the way you used to watch funerals growing up when you were too, too little to do anything about it. Right. Uh, or perhaps even too little to know whether you wanted to do anything with it or not. But I watched those funerals very interestingly. And those funeral directors had an impact on me. They were sharp. They were well-dressed. The way they presented themselves, uh, the, the way they spoke with people, it was just a high impact on me. And I, I didn't know what they did, but I told myself even in the third grade, Bruce, I don't know what these people do, but I want to do it. Right. In the third grade, I want to do it. And uh, they, when the funeral was over, we had the church, you know, the church was set there on the churchyard. The cemetery, a huge cemetery, was across uh, Highway 119. And here I was, a little boy, wanting to help with the funeral in some way. So those people were kind enough, I thought, to let me carry flowers out of the church and across the street to the cemetery. So you can imagine, I mean, this is back in the day when funerals uh, uh, had large stands of flowers. Yeah, hundreds, country. hundreds, yeah. Hundreds, that's exactly right. Well, here's this little boy, fourth, fifth grade, with two big old stands walking across the highway. They couldn't see me. I, I was immersed down there between the stands. And we were going across to the, to the cemetery. Well, I thought they were so gracious to me to let me do that. I didn't realize until much later in life then maybe they just enjoyed using me because of the help that I was bringing to the process. Right. It was one last trip they would have. But anyway, that's how I grew up in West, in, in, uh, in, in the center of North Carolina, uh, son of a Presbyterian minister. Uh, we later, the summer before the sixth grade, we moved. Daddy accepted a call to, a, to uh, Anderson, South Carolina, uh, to become the executive presbyter of what was then known as Piedmont Presbytery. That's kind of an administrative job within the Presbyterian Church. I would say it corresponds probably to a bishop in the Methodist Church. Right. He had administrative responsibility of several churches and Presbyterian churches of several counties. So we moved to Anderson, and um, that's when I first got to be introduced to the McDougal Funeral Home when I was in high school. But to go back just a little bit further than I, I'm getting this a little bit out of sequence. That's all right. That's all right. But, but one of the things I want to point out is that in my mother's family, they grew up in, in uh, St. Paul's, North Carolina. My mother was from St. Paul's, North Carolina. Her father was the first mayor of St. Paul's, North Carolina. 
And he had, if you know the history of undertaking, as I know you do very well, it, it, was a, it was a funeral home, but it was also a hardware store and a furniture store, all that combined in one. Well, whenever we would go to North Carolina, to, to uh, St. Paul's, North Carolina, for Christmas or Thanksgiving or whatever it was, whatever the holiday or the event was, I would do my duty and greeting the family and giving grandparents hugs and aunts and uncles hugs and all that. But then I made it a, made a beeline, uh, Bruce to the funeral. Home. Right. And, and, and I would have been in the fourth grade, fifth grade, maybe at that point in time. Like me. I mean, I used to watch my dad and I, I said the same thing when I was 13 years old, this is what I'm going to do. And, and I would watch him go in these difficult situations and, he was so good at it. He had people respected him so much. I, I knew when I was at Georgia, all my buddies were trying to figure out what they were going to do in their life. I knew I was going to mortuary school when I graduated and be in this business. So I'm the same way. I, I don't remember anything but this business. It's changed a lot since then. But uh, I certainly have very similar early passion for this business. So tell me about going to Vietnam. How did that come about? We were living in, in Anderson, and I had graduated from high school and went to college, went to Keene College in Bristol, Tennessee, a Presbyterian school. Got my degree, and during the senior, during the end of my, at the end of my senior year at Keene College, I got a letter that I certainly treasure even to this day. It was a letter from Uncle Sam, the United <laughs> States government. Right. They were service in the military. Now that was back in the day when the draft was still alive and, and very well. Uh, so I got the draft notice and it, it explained that my deferment, my college deferment was running out at the end of that year, which I knew. Was that like 1970 in that area? In 1970. Yep. Exactly when, yep. Exactly when it was in 1970. So I got to thinking about that letter, Bruce, and I thought, you know, from what I've heard about the way the military works, if I have this funeral service background, this funeral service interest, and even a good bit of experience, although at all part-time at that point, they're going to put me into cutting hair, or they're going to put me into some something I have no desire to be a part of. So I decided I was going to go down and enlist. So when I got that letter, after I thought about it, I went down to Bristol, Virginia. Uh, I was college in, in Bristol, went down and, and, and signed up for the army. And they guaranteed me that I would have the MOS, which is military occupational specialty, 57F, which the new name for it was activities. That's for those that are going into to caring for the dead. Uh, the, the old name, Bruce, was Graves Registration. So they updated it a little bit. Okay. <laughs> uh, so I got that MOS. Now, I didn't, there was no guarantee as to where I would be using that MOS. Right. I did have the MOS uh, guaranteed to me, which I was real, real glad to have. So uh, graduated from King College and then directly into basic training, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and then went from Fort Campbell, Kentucky to Fort Lee, Virginia, which is where the MOS training took place the Memorial Activities uh, Training. And I was there for eight, eight weeks, I believe it was, if I remember correctly. By this time, it's, it's Thanksgiving of the year 1970. And I had, a, I had a couple weeks between AIT training and my next duty assignment, which was Vietnam. So I was at home with family, and I, I remember, I'll never forget, Bruce, while I was home with family for Thanksgiving, they, holidays were a big deal in my family. They, we, we went to my aunt's house in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, where all of my family and all of her family, cousins, all that sort of, we had Christmas at Thanksgiving. Right. Christmas, I wasn't going to be here. I was going to be across the pond, as they say. So we had uh, we had Christmas, and I remember watching the news one night while there, and there was this story about a United States Air Force plane that had gone down up near the DMZ, the demilitarized zone near North Vietnam, and all on board were casualties. There were seventy nine on on board of that flight, all of which 
all of whom were killed. And the complication was they couldn't get in to rescue them. Hmm. They couldn't get into the area for, for hostility reasons and weather reasons. Then uh, I, my leave was over, went to, uh, reported to the airport, flew to uh, Oakland, California, from Oakland, California to uh, Alaska, and from Alaska to Benoit Air Base. <laughs> when we flew into Benoit Air Base, Bruce, uh, had a great trip, great flight, no problems, nothing but soldiers. Most of us were reporting to our very first uh, tour of duty in Vietnam. We were young chaps. And uh, you heard the all across the pond, you heard the banter, the cackling, and all the things going on on the plane. But then as we approached Benoit, Vietnam, you see flares going up from the ground. You heard all of a sudden the boys got just as quiet. You could hear a pin drop on that plane. Huh. Somebody had the presence. You remember a popular song that was uh, going around back in those days, The Carpenters. We've only just begun. Yep, very much. Somebody played that song. They had a little cassette player. They played that song. We've only just begun. I don't know whether that was coincidence or whether it was planned, but that's what, what was going on. <laughs> when the when the plane landed, we were scared to death. We were the, the players going up were frightening, although they were our United States players. Right. Uh, our our forces were lighting up the ground, but I didn't know that. We thought they were shooting at us. Uh, <laughs> We got off the plane and we went to this. Uh, we didn't realize what we were going to be doing next. We went to a uh, reception center. Now, this is not a place where they serve uh, cookies and punch and, <laughs> and little sandwiches, you know, with the crust taken off. This is a military infantry reception where we were told, ordered to get our sales and gear and go they, they threw some sheets at us and we had to go make up a we went into this primitive facility we had some little uh, bunk beds in it we had to make up a bed by this time it's about two o'clock in the morning so we had to, to do all that make up the bed fell into bed got a little bit of sleep in the morning we got up we went over to shower had breakfast and then we found out where our assignment was going to be there were, Bruce, there were young men who were going to be in MOS that were sent to infantry battalions. I didn't think about that. I didn't think about that possibility, but I could have been assigned to an infantry battalion where my job would have been not only to fight the battle, but also specifically to retrieve the casualties right. off of the field and, and bring them into care. Right. The good Lord was with me. I had prayed about it and prayed about it. I believed in prayer. Right. I wound up going to the Taj Mahal, this beautiful United States Army mortuary in Saigon, Vietnam. It was actually on the Tonsonuk Air Base, part of the part of the part of the airport there in um, in, in Saigon. That place would have been the envy, probably, of many modern funeral homes in the United States. Now, they didn't have the visitation rooms and all, none of that, but it had the administrative uh, area was a very critical part of it. And then the, the uh, facility where the bodies were received, where they were identified, uh, which that was a big laborious uh, process, a very important process where embalming was done, where remains were placed in containers to be shipped back home so that once again they could be at, at the home of the how busy was it dan was it how many people were coming through there uh bruce if you look at the statistics of the war there were fifty-four thousand some casualties so all of them would have gone through there but now during the year that i was there we probably had about four thousand all young people killed in battle that was one of the things I wanted to tell you about this Vietnam experience. I had worked at McDougal's. I worked there part-time when I was in high school. So you go into the preparation room at McDougal's and you'd see, you know, the, the usual uh, mix of people who had passed away. You had your senior citizens. Right. Every rare now and then a young person. But when they took me on that tour that first day when they delivered me into the mortuary, 
we went into the preparation area and my goodness, there were 12 embalming table groups on each side of the room, 12 on each side. It, it, uh, the, the, the end of the table was over this, lar this large communal trough. Every one of those tables, every one of those tables had a young person, a child as it were. Yeah. And that was a big impact. That had a big impact. So, so let me ask you something. Let's just put a comma. When you see the, the, or hear the Star Spangled Banner played and the flag go up, you stand straight. You're, it's a major deal. Isn't it right? You've seen the sacrifices that people made. Firsthand. Uh, yeah, yeah. Firsthand. Unbelievable. It's so touching. It is just so, and, and it's still, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very lucky. I, you know, I, I never had any problem with people later on in, in life after I came home was being ugly to me because I was in Vietnam and it was an unpopular war politically and all that. I was proud of what I had done. But you should I, have been proud. I mean, you should have been proud. And, and, and people treated me that way. I never had any bad treatment. I was aware that there was stuff going on around, you know, about uh, the political incorrectness as perceived by some of the war, but I, I was treated wonderfully. I bet you got a, a lot of experience in a hurry there in, in doing this job, right? Not enough experience, Bruce, that the South Carolina State Board of Funeral Service decided that they were going to count that time on my apprenticeship for embalming because I couldn't have gotten any more experience somewhere else at a local funeral home. For sure. So you really learned to embalm there? Were you already embalming before you went there? A little, I already knew how, I mean, I wasn't an accomplished embalmer, Bruce. Right. I worked part-time, but, but I knew how, and I, and I loved doing it. And the, the embalming at the mortuary in Vietnam was not done by soldiers like myself. They were done by civilians. Okay. Well-paid civilians back in that day. But those civilians had no problem with some of us young bucks who were eager they had no problem in stepping aside and letting us do what we wanted to do under vision of course. Uh, they were all licensed embalmers and funeral directors from the various states back in, in the country. Uh, so I did get to do some embalming over there, but it was not that was not my purpose. That wasn't my main role. I actually had several jobs while I was there uh, and enjoyed, loved every one of them. I wouldn't take anything for the experience. I bet. Have you been back? Have you been back to Vietnam? No, but funny you mentioned that. I would love to. I, I bet. I would have the opportunity, but but I have not been back. Yeah. Can you imagine? I wonder if that mortuary is still there. I'm so much. I, that's the first place I'd go. I'd go find that building if I possibly could and see whatever became. It was nice. I mean, we had tropical plants rolling sure. out of the ground, and it was just. Well, you got good. started in this business in a bang. So you came back from Vietnam. Did you go straight to school after that? Did you start working at a funeral home, or tell how that happened? When I I hadn't see I'd enlisted in the military, so I had three years. Supposed to have three years. When I came back from Vietnam, I had a 30-day leave, and then my next duty assignment was the United States Army Mortuary in Oakland, California, where I was assigned as a escort. Uh, I would receive the bodies at the mortuary there. They would do the cosmetics, the dressing, the casketing, all that sort of thing. And then I would accompany the soldiers who had died, uh, particularly the Army, back to their home. I picked and, up a many of People coming in with the escort, yeah, yeah, very familiar. I got a notice. I was, I was, I was enjoying that because it was meaningful. I, I didn't do it because I loved. This is good. For, this is what I wanted. This is all about me. That's not it. I felt the difference I was making. That's that's been a theme throughout my whole adult career. Sure. I want to make a difference for people. And I still pray in my old age, I'm 74 years old, just turned 74 this past month. I still pray that as long as the good Lord give me health and the ability to get around that I'll have a purpose uh, that will serve other people in some way, whatever manner that. As you know better than me, but in my experience, the person escorting those remains to home was very important to that family. 
it was an important job and you were able to touch a lot of people, I'm sure. Yeah, there's stories of some that had some of the escorts received some hostility, but that, that that's that too is even understandable. But you just had to be strong through that. So, so how how'd you end up at Gupton Jones? I went to work at McDougal. Oh, the, the point I was trying to tell you, the thing that was, was leading up to that, the answer to that question is that I suddenly found myself in a dilemma. Uh, I was out there doing the escort duty, which I was thoroughly enjoying, but then I got this notice from the HR, what amounts to human resources, and they says, because there are so many troops that are coming back from Vietnam, they cannot go from Vietnam to an overseas tour of duty. But they, after you've been in a war zone, you have to come to America. I wasn't even aware of that. But, but anyway, they said, you have the option of getting out of the military if you want to. They'll release you. Now, the condition for that is you'll serve the balance of your time uh, in a local uh, Army Reserve unit. I had to think about that thing because I was enjoying what I was doing. Very meaningful to me. But I got out. So I got out of the military in January, I guess it was, January of, of 1972. And so not knowing what else to do, I called my grandfather-like figure, Mr. Douglas McDougal Sr., owner of McDougal Funeral Home in Anderson. And, I, and, and he, he really was. He was like a grandfather to me. And he, he was so thrilled that I was home. And he said, you come on down here and you work. Uh, get started whenever you want to. You always have a home here. So I went back to work at McDougal's, and then I found out that there was this school in Atlanta called Gupton Jones College. And it was just a small school. Uh, in fact, I found out it was on the fifth floor of an office building right on Peachtree Street, 1330 West Peachtree. So I got busy and found out that there was a class enrolling in March of that year, with just two months from now. So I wound up getting a job at a funeral home there in Atlanta a place which provided a place to stay and a little spending money. Enrolled in March of 72. I was enrolled at, at Gupton Jones and just, again, just love that. Did you go back to the McDougal Funeral Home after you got out of Gupton Jones? For a short while. But see, to teach, I, I don't know why, Bruce, it never dawned on When I was at King College, I took a lot of education courses. Right. I did practice teaching in an elementary school in Virginia. I love teaching, but I had the passion for the funeral profession. I don't know why all those days sitting in class, it didn't dawn on me that these guys teaching in mortuary college were making a living doing it. I got back home, graduated, came back to McDougal's and Anderson and, and just, you know, wait to see about what that next step might be. I didn't know what the good Lord had in store for me. And one day, Mr. Millicent, whom you know well, called and he wouldn't know about the possibility of me teaching at Gupton Jones College. And he was the president then, I guess, right? He was the president. I told him, I got, I, 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 it was a conversation that, I, that meant a lot to me. And, and, and I thought, you know, this might be, there might be something to this. Uh, this might be the voice of the Lord coming through loud and clear, but I'm going to make sure. I, I, we, we talked and I thanked him and so on and so forth. But anyway, I decided I wanted to do that, but I had a problem, Bruce. I wasn't licensed. I graduated. I wanted to make sure. I, I said, Mr. Molson, I do not want to stand in front of those students until I have got a license in my pocket. When I want to look at them and say, I've got what you want. So you better pay attention. Anyway, I got the license. And, and as soon as I got it, uh, they said, come on. I went down and started to teach. What year was that? In 1974. 74. So I came just a couple of years later, 76. You hadn't been there long. Yeah. First class I taught was in, I started teaching March the 1st, 1974. So what, what year did you become president of Gupton Jones? 81. I became dean in 78. Okay. So you became dean after I left. I was a lowly instructor when you were there. Yeah. Well, I didn't know that. <laughs> you and I 
had a great relationship. I always enjoyed my students so much. They, they, they were dear friends. They were a lot more than students. And, you know, some wanted to have that relationship with their teachers. There were some of us teachers who wanted to have that friendship with them and were, and were glad to see it develop. You were one of those people to me. That was an interesting time in my life. I was driving back and forth from Reynolds to Atlanta, two, hour, two hours up, two hours back. That's when I did my studying. I, I yeah. certainly didn't have time to study when I got home and got married somewhere in the middle of that. But I was, I really wasn't trying to socialize. I, I wasn't, I didn't join any of the fraternities or anything. I'd been through that for four years at Georgia. I was, I was more interested in, in making sure that, you know, flunking the national board was not even in my thinking. I, that was never crossed my mind that I would even think about doing that. I was, I, I wanted the grades. I didn't do that at Georgia. I, I did what I had to do to get by at Georgia. When I went to mortuary school, I was wanting to learn everything I could learn. You were never a candidate for a flunking out at Bethlehem. <laughs> Believe me, over the years, I got to be a pretty good expert at knowing who was a candidate for that and who was in danger and who wasn't. Yep. But you know this, how did you study driving back and forth? Believe it or not, when I was in Athens, I remember driving from the beach one weekend and read a whole book from from the Jekyll Island to Athens by holding the book. So. I would, you know, you had the books. I would, I would have create something to call stuff out. I just did it in the car. I mean, that's why I did it. I had, I had more study time than most people. We're glad you're alive still. <laughs> that is true. That that was an interesting year. I remember. I just thought about it when you were talking. You remember that's when the big plane crash happened out at Dallas, Georgia. You remember that right in the middle of that, and a lot of our guys got involved in that. In fact, we did some of the embalming at the college. Right. Right. I mean, how many, I forgot how many people killed a hundred and something people, wasn't it? Bruce, it was a large, it was a large number. I mean, we, we went down to the, the medical examiner's office and, and helped down there and did some embalming at the college. So here's the thing that, yeah, that was crazy. Cause I was talking to some of the guys that, you know, another thing you may not know, you probably do, but there was a guy that I'm friends with today. He may listen to this. It's okay. But he mentioned to me one time that his wife was going to be in Playboy magazine. <laughs> Did you ever know that story? I don't believe I ever knew that story. And, I, and she was. Of course, we, we heard it. Everybody went and bought the magazine, and she, <laughs> and she came to the graduation, and we were all knew who she was. I mean, I remember it plain as day. It was, that was all kind of stuff. She was like Girls of the South or something, the Girls of Atlanta or something. I forgot what it was. I can tell you all kind of stories about things that happened on graduation days. Oh, I bet. Oh, my goodness. I bet you can so the other thing I know is that, as I said at the beginning, you've met a lot of people, a lot of students that I know you had great influence on, and but also probably impacted you over the years. And, and the stories that, that come out of that are just personal stories of things that happened. And I think people would like to hear that, that impacted you or people that you've known over the years or whatever, whatever comes to your mind. Bruce, you're so right about that. The students had a big impact on me. I, 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 I mean very uh, sincerely when I say the words that my students were a much greater blessing to me than I was to them. There, there were things that happened uh, along the journey there and I, as I was at, at Guppy Jones College. I know that one of the, this was after we moved into the new college. Uh, the one on Snapfinger Wood Drive in Decatur. The cool, school just kept growing and growing. We wound up moving to Decatur. We had a young man that was in, in, in school. His name was, and I know you know the family very well. His name was Nathan Stanley. Richard Stanley, they, they're... Um, Great folks, yeah. Wonderful people down in Dublin, Georgia. Yep. Nathan's little brother, Shan Stanley, was killed one morning while he was, while Nathan was a student at Guffin Jones, he was killed back home as he was driving to school himself. I got a call that morning from the sheriff of the county, and he said that he was en route to Atlanta, to the college, that he had Richard Stanley, the daddy, with him, and that this horrible thing had happened, and he went into the explanation as to what it was, and it was just so hard for me to, to, to believe. It was just, uh, just horrible, knowing what that family was going through, those that knew about it, and here I am with my dear friend, and I do mean that at the time, he was, he was and still is a very dear friend with Nathan Stanley, good, fine young man, great promise in funeral service, and, and, and I knew what he was going to be finding out, and that just, it, that was hard, Bruce, it was very difficult. 
I said, you come on here, you come straight into the building, you park out here, there's a, a reserve sign, you, you park out front of the building, come in, tell the registrar that you're here to see me, you and Richard come in, we'll come to my office and we'll take it from there. So they came in and uh, I welcomed them into my office and spoke to Richard, gave him a hug, told him how sorry I was. Uh, I think we even maybe had a prayer perhaps, if I remember correctly. And I says, now Nathan, of course, doesn't know anything about this. He's in class. First, the first period has already started. If you're ready, I'm going to go to the class and ask him to come out and bring him to you. Then I'm going to walk him in, and then I'm going to disappear. And I'll stay as long as you like. So I went and got Nathan, and he came popping out of the classroom happy and just honored that I would come and get him. He didn't know what Lord it was for, of course. I said, Nathan, you have got some visitors here. Your dad is here. Uh, there's some things that they need to talk with you about. So he sensed there was something up. We went in. I closed the door and left. And it was just an emotional time. And, you know, Bruce, I thought, this is a school that trains people that are going into a career in funeral service. I like to look at it as a ministry. If there was ever a person that needed ministry in that moment, and in the days that followed that moment, it was them. I'm Nathan Stanley. I'm a funeral director. Actually, I'm a third generation funeral director at um, Stanley Funeral Home and Crematory based out of Dublin, Georgia and Wrightsville, Georgia. Back in 1998, I was in mortuary school at Dublin Jones College of Funeral Service in Atlanta when Mr. Buchanan was, was our dean at the time. And I was sitting in class early one morning and they got me. We were getting ready for a uh, exam and they told me to bring my book bag. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Um, I knew I hadn't done anything to get in any trouble because uh, my daddy would have killed me. When I walked into the office, Mr. Buchanan was sitting behind his desk. My father and our sheriff at the time, Kenny Webb, was sitting on the couch in his office or in a chair there to the left when he walked in his door. And I could look at my daddy's face and tell something was wrong. And I did not <clears throat> realize what he was fixing to tell me over the next five seconds would impact my life for the rest of my life. My brother was involved in a bad accident earlier that morning and ultimately had died from the results from the, from the car crash. You know, it was hard for me to process. I've never really lost anybody other than my grandparents and you know it was it was tough however um i remember that day they they put me in the sheriff's car took me home and somebody came and got my truck from the sheriff's department later that day mr buchanan looked after it till that could happen went home we had the funeral later on that week we got through with the funeral my dad told me, said, son, you got to go back to school. You can't stay out. You've been out a week. It's tough. You know, and as a young boy that had never experienced anything like this, it was tough on me. I came back on the following Monday, all of my family back in Dublin and in Wrightsville, and, you know, he's kind of lost, didn't know what was going on. And if it hadn't been for Mr. Buchanan and some of the teachers up there, they kind of babied me and pushed me through and prodded me and didn't give up on me and I thank God for it every day because I wouldn't be the, the funeral director that I am today. They they just kind of took me in under their wing and, and made sure that I followed through with what I was there to do and that was to get through mortuary school and get my funeral director license and I'll never be able to thank him. Uh, he, he doesn't even have a clue how much that meant to me. As a funeral director, it influenced me tremendously to be able to talk to people that have gone through what I've been through. It's not an easy task, and I think that it has enabled people like me that has been through it to be able to show a family, you're going to make it, you're going to be okay. It's tough right now, but you're going to be able to, to, to put your pants on the next day, and you're going to move forward, and God's going to look after you.
But Mr. Buchanan was a vital uh, part of that process for me, being able to move on and move forward in my career and not give up. Every part of me wanted to go home. They, they, they kept me going where I kept, kept myself focused. All along my journey, I've just had many situations such as this that's reinforced to me the importance of what you do, what I do in serving the broken. You know, it's interesting you say that, and I know you've got the same mindset. So, you know, most people, when they, when something like that has happened, most people, the last thing they want to do is go to that situation. Let, let me back off. Let me get out. Let me, I don't want to have to deal with that. My mindset, I know yours is, that's where I want to go. That's where I was put on earth to do. That is the place I want to be where that's happened. I want to be right there. That's what I, I was trained to do. That's what I was gifted to do. That is the most important stuff I've ever done is, is not only telling people, and we've all done that just like you had to do then or, or be with somebody when they're telling them that the person died or meeting with them. It's not an easy job. People don't understand. You're sitting in front of somebody, and if a grandfather just backed over a grandchild, and you're having to deal with that, and you got to talk about money, you got to talk about funeral contract. I mean, all of that, it, it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, but you you got to do it. People that's never sat on the other side of that table or the other side of that desk don't understand. But I, I do believe it takes somebody that's that's really called to do it, that's gifted to do it, to do it well. And I've seen people do it really well. I believe very strongly, you know, you, you, you've got to have the academic background. You've got to be able to pass your board exams and all that sort of thing. But when you combine that with the heart, I call it the heart, having the heart for the business, that's what makes you great. you got the training, the background, and all that sort of thing that you have to have to get in. But you've got the heart for it. You've got the love of your fellow man. You've got the love of people. That's what it takes yeah. uh, to be successful in, in this uh, in this work that we do. And, and when you've got a person that has that quality, it, it stands out. You interviewed a young lady who worked at a funeral home in Keene, New Hampshire. Yep. It's clear to me, as you interviewed her, that she had the heart for success in spite of untold uh, handicaps, uh, her heart got her over all of that, and she was excellent. Yeah, she was amazing, amazing lady. There's no question. Uh, I, I left the college. I felt like the time came when I had done all for the school I can. It was top of the game. The enrollment was over 500 students at a time. We had just gone through accreditation, got a full accreditation without any kind of conditions imposed upon us, which is rather remarkable, actually. And I said, okay, it's time. It's time. If I'm going to make a move, now's the time. And, and, and I, Batesville, I had friends in Batesville, and they knew that I had reached that point. And my wife had, we talked about it over and over again. And made, I decided to, to take the opportunity to go to Batesville. So I did. That's, uh, that's Batesville, Indiana. Fantastic company, Batesville, Indiana. That was in January of 2001. I had begun sometime, some years before at Guthrie Jones, the fraternity. Uh, we have a, a, a field trip to Batesville Casket Company where we go and stay in the farm. Yep. And, you know, that's a uh, beloved experience. I've been there. Know. I've been there several times. I, yep. I know you have. And, and so we, we took the fraternity every year. Well, my first year as a staff member at Batesville, the first fraternity that came was a wonderful group. I had them to dinner over at my house. Well, that first night they arrived in town. Then the next day we had our seminar that I taught most all of them, which I enjoyed doing. And there was this young man in there that I had met the night before in my house. We talked a good bit. We had a connection. He was in the Navy. I had been in the Army, as you know. During the seminar that I was doing, he obviously was getting a little bit uncomfortable, bothered. And a few minutes later, he left the room. And so I continued doing what I was doing. And then we had a break 
and I went straight to him to find him. Find what's going on? You you know Greg Free. Yep, I do. Good SCI. Right. He's been a good friend. He became a good friend. That was the first I had ever met him. I never taught him. He came to Guppy Jones after I left. But we were very dear friends as if I was one of as if he was one of my students. But anyway, he shared with me that what was bothering him was just weeks before, maybe a month or so before, his young brother, Petey, had been killed in a car wreck. And information that I was going over with him, it was just kind of raw for him. And it was hard. And and, and so that created a, a, a very unique bond. Again, reinforcing that we who do what we do, we do it for a reason. And I guarantee you that both of these people, Nathan Stanley, down in Dublin, Georgia, and uh, Greg Free, they're better funeral directors having gone through that horrible experience. Yeah. I've lost my parents now, of course, and all that. So we, we've all we've all been, you certainly have. But those experiences help us to understand what it's like to be on the other side of that desk. There's no question that that is true. And it's, it's very difficult at first when you go through that to have to keep doing this business and it really, some people leave because of it. They can't do it. I was talking to a guy the other day that, that owned a funeral home that his, his kid was killed and he tried to keep operating, ended up selling it and getting out. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's not easy for sure. Let's pause. I've got Greg Free that's going to uh, speak to Dan to what you just talked about. You know, I think back over my early part of my career uh, in funeral service, I was just in the end of mortuary school and I was in the fraternity and went to Batesville on a trip and Mr. Buchanan was there presenting, uh, working for Batesville. Um, I didn't have the pleasure of him being my teacher, but uh, he was our guide on this trip. And about a month prior to this trip, um, I lost my brother tragically in a car accident at the age of 16. <clears throat> and you know, that was really a time for me where I was unsure if I was gonna continue my journey in funeral service because of that loss. And I remember sitting there at Batesville and we're going over some presentations that Dan was doing and there was something about memories and presenting folks' memories and, and remembering their lives and, and you know, just hit me kind of between the eyes. And I left the room and I'll never forget Mr. Buchanan coming out and finding me and, and he talked to me and he asked me about my story. He asked me about what was going on. I, I didn't have a relationship with him prior to that but made the trip a lot easier. Um, had a great trip. Um, obviously, it was still tough on my family because of what was going on back home. But I think for me in my funeral service journey, that was a pivotal point in my career because I had been in the business prior to that, was still working at a funeral home. But that really taught me a lesson of even in the midst of our own personal tragedy, sometimes we can pick up the pieces and really become great at what we do because of the pain and the heartache that we may have felt from our own personal loss and apply that to what we do every day to deal with families. And truthfully, before that, I thought that sounded great on paper, but I'd never felt it. But that day I felt it. And I had a renewed sense of, hey, I, I can do this, not only for me, but I'm gonna honor my brother and I'm gonna complete my funeral service journey. And here I am 21 years later, still in that journey. And I would like to think that a big part of that is because of Dan Buchanan. The thing that I'm, I'm I see that this industry is changing the importance of the funeral, the importance of the funeral director is not what it was in 1976 when I first met you. I'll put it like that. Well, what do you see? What do you see happening? Oh, uh, Bruce, it's all, over, it's all over the map. Of course, we know that traditional funeral services where the, the Lord is worshipped and the life is is celebrated and the hymns are sung and the burial takes place those are far and far few between cremation is greatly on the rise now we are committed as funeral directors to serve the needs of the people whatever those needs are sure it just seems like normal doesn't exist anymore families are different now there are those that seem to have a lot of hostility within themselves, you know, when they come to the arrangement process. They not in any hurry to get things done. You know, we got a vacation coming up. We'll, we'll, we'll get in touch with you when we get back from Cancun or wherever it is they're going. Uh, there's an awful lot of that. Going, and I'm not being critical of it, 
But your question was, how have things changed? Those are changes that have been, have been taking place gradually and they're definite changes. It's just, it wasn't that way before. Douglas McDougall Jr. has said many times, the golden age of funeral service is gone. What he meant by that was that the traditions that made this profession great don't hardly exist as much anymore as they used to. But now we do still make it great. We make it great by serving families well, by being versatile, by being flexible. It's just a different, it's a different game. The rule book of 1980 is going to be very different from the rule book now. Yep. And, and with that comes the people that are getting in the business. When you look, used to stand up and teach to a group of people that for the most part were pretty sharp people. Yes. And, and so you had people that would, uh, you know, have a future in whatever they were going to do. Uh, you know, even back then, a lot of the people that graduated from Gutton Jones didn't stay in the business anyway. I know in my class, a lot of them didn't. But most of those people could do most anything. Now it's people like them are not getting into this industry. That's, that's another issue that's changing, I think. Am, am I right? You're exactly right about that. That's a societal change in general. The dedication to anything just doesn't exist today like it did years ago. And, and so what is that robbing society of? What bothers me is this, that there people now not just getting cremated but not having a service. Just say, give me the ashes and we, we won't do anything. And, and, and they miss the human touch, the people that gather for those funerals, in my mind, there was there's a lot of closure. And in fact, I, I did a podcast. It's episode number five. It's called Treasures in Heaven. I buried my good friend's child. And she started talking about how important the physical body of her child was to her. And it, right. it was very important that who she entrusted that child with, and the fact that we were longtime friends meant a lot to her, it was very important that that child was at that funeral in the casket. She even talked about, she remembered what was in the casket. So there was a lot of healing that took place. You get the hugs from people. You're honoring your person, your loved one. I'm going to pause here and play you a few sound bites from the conversation I had from episode five with my friend Rena as she's talking about the death and subsequent funeral for her beloved daughter, Caitlin. So I got up in the, on the bed and I got her in my arms and she breathed um, her last breath here and her first breath in heaven. And, and what I was thinking as, as your friend and as a funeral director, and I was going to take care of the physical body, although we knew she was in heaven, the physical body of your child was very important to you at that moment and that she be treated uh, uh, the way you wanted her to be treated. Oh, yes. And let me back up just a, just a little bit. When you came in and I was on the bed holding her and, of course, sobbing and people were beginning to gather, you did not immediately try to take her from me. You just sat down on the bed with, with us and you just put your arm around me and you said you can hold her as long as you want to. And, and I knew that you were going to have to take her. But you said, honey, I'm going to take good care of her. And you did. You did. And I knew you would because I got a phone call not long after you had gone back to the funeral home with her. And you told me that you had polished her fingernails you put her in a little Easter dress and you had washed her hair. And yes, it was hard to let her go, but I was able to release her into your hands. And that, that meant so much for all of us in the family. But then we, let's talk about the funeral. Well, uh, I wondered, I, I remember wondering, I wonder how many hugs that I, I will I'll have this day. And there must have been hundreds, hundreds of people just hugging me. 
And I needed every single one. I needed every person who was there. Everybody that I needed was there. And there was that little pink co uh, coffin at the front of the church. And inside the top of the, of the casket, there was an angel embroidered on it. And that also meant so much to me. And so many people said, well, she's not here. She's not really in the, in the coffin. She's with Jesus. That is true. But this is the body that I gave birth to. This is the body that I bathed. I held her hand. I, I knew her smell. I had heard this little body say, I love you, mommy, many, many, many times. That little body was so very important to me. And I've thought about that and thought about that over the years. And I think it's true also of God's son. When Jesus went to the cross, there came a time when God said, it's enough. He has suffered enough. And at that point, he sent people who took very careful care of his body. I think we're missing that. You know, I go back to, I think you probably told me the quote. I've learned it somewhere along the note. Go show me the way a nation cares for its dead. And I will measure with mathematical exactness the tender mercies of his people. So I think it is, it's not just about the funeral business. What you said is true. It's a move like a lot of other things of, of the stuff that made this country great. <laughs> yeah, and that's exactly right. We're seeing a lot of changes in a lot of different fields, like in, in education. We got children being killed in the classrooms. There's just all kinds of uh, disrespect for police. It, it's just a different world. It's a different world. And those changes affect us in our profession. And we have to learn to serve in it and, insert, and overcome the, the, the changes that are going on. For the last 15 years of my career, that's what we were doing is, is learning to be uh, a different profession, you know, and being learning how to serve people that have different needs. I mean, people listen to this. This is two old codgers that's been around a long time in the funeral business. You may not agree with what we're saying, and that's okay, but we strongly believe what we're saying. We've seen the importance of what we do and the importance of this whole profession, the importance of, of taking care of the dead and ministering to the, to the living, we see that changing and it, it's, it's just a different world. I mean, it, it, but thankful for the careers that we've had and for the service we've been able to provide. You know, coronavirus has made a big difference in how we serve as well. No, no doubt. We start now we're doing Facebook Live and that's all that going on. People don't have to come. Same way with church. I mean, you know, a lot of people... Don't go to church. Well, they weren't going to church anyway, but now even the ones that were can watch it online, you know. There's another example of how of how changes are affected, not just funeral service, but the church. Big change. When you were in school, Bruce, I bet you never did a, a Facebook Live. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I didn't. When I was listening to you teach or sitting yeah. in the classroom, I never checked my iPhone either. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not a teacher today. You would have to battle that. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine? I have a box at the door and say, put them in. We are who we are. We look at this. We've both got a lot of experience in this, in this profession. We're very proud to have been in it. I know there's still people are doing important stuff in this business. I went to a funeral uh, Sunday afternoon, and it was just a traditional funeral. People, a lot of hugs. People there, I mean, obviously, that's still going on. And even people that get cremated, they're obviously people come, they have memorial services. But the big thing I worry about is people not doing anything. And I just think there's an emptiness, there's something people that are missing that, that they need. The, the thing that I want to kind of end on is I know you spent your life developing people. You were their teacher. You, I bet 90% of the people that are older than you probably still call you Mr. Buchanan, you know, because that's what they called you in school. And you have a special position with a lot of people. And I, I know that I am one of those people that you influence. And I had a great run. And I know there's a bunch of other people out there that have too. You've seen people take off in this career and do well. I know that has to make you smile. You have to look in the mirror and say, you know, doggone, if I don't do anything else, I had a part in that. And 
that is endless for you as the many people as you've taught there's no telling how many people you taught and how many people from that from their kids and family that know you what is your advice to people now that are thinking about getting in this profession based on everything we just said in spite of the you know the challenges that we face they're new challenges but that doesn't change the greatness of funeral service as a profession as a career what I would say to a person that's considering it is be sure you've got the heart for it. Your, your purpose has got to be to serve your fellow man. If that's not what's driving you, you won't be successful, or at least your success will probably be limited. You don't get into this because you like to wear suits or like to drive big cars or think that you're going to make a lot of money. That's not what has to be your motivating uh, force. What has to motivate you is to serving your fellow man at the most difficult time of their lives. And there is still no greater calling in my view than that. And the other piece of that, people are gonna keep dying and whatever else they're doing, when you're in this business, you're gonna be dealing with people that have lost their loved one, period. That's not gonna end. And as you said during this, and I reiterated it, that's our greatest calling, to be able to interact with people and somehow use what we've learned to help them through difficult time. This is a wonderful, noble career, and it's, it was before, and it still is to this day. All about serving your fellow man. But Dan, I'm thankful that you crossed my path 46 years ago or whatever it was. You're back where you started. You're back in your hometown, Anderson, and you're you're doing what you do best. God bless you, man. That's great stuff. I'm glad to know you, Dan. It's been a wonderful, wonderful relationship for a lot of years. You know, uh, Bruce, you're, you've been a blessing to me and always will be. We need to keep up with each other in the days ahead. Yeah, I agree 100%. Thank you, Dan, very much. Appreciate it, my friend. Thank you. Take care, Bruce. Viewing life from a hearse, it could be worse. Laugh, think, and cry with the country undertaker.